Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. Go away, John said in a childlike voice. Erica didn't want to hurt anyone, but she was out of time. Jean backed up until she hit the wall. Nowhere to go. Erica held out her left hand, beckoning for the cartridge. Jean threw herself face down on the tile floor, her body covering the cartridge as she screamed at the top of her lungs. Erica ran to her, grabbed the bigger woman's shoulder, and yanked hard, trying to roll her over. Jean, give it to me! She kept pulling without effect. The woman wouldn't budge. The axe point would punch through the back of her skull like an eggshell, but Erica sure as hell wasn't going to kill the woman. She straddled Jean's legs, then reached out with her right hand, grabbed a handful of thick black hair, and yanked. Jean's head snapped back, and she howled in pain. Erica slid the axe head past Jean's throat, then grabbed the handle with both hands and pulled cold wood against warm flesh. Jean started to choke. She'd have to let go of the backup drive to grab at the axe. Then Erica could smash the drive and end all this bullshit. Erica pulled harder, steadily increasing pressure on John's fat neck. But the woman just wouldn't let go. Give me the cartridge, you stupid bitch! John started thrashing from side to side, sputtering out hoarse choking noises, but held the drive tight. Colding sprinted into the bioinformatics lab to see a bizarre sight. A snarling, skinny, 45-year-old woman using a fire axe to choke a 250-pound Chinese lady wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Two middle-aged scientists going at it like a couple of prison inmates during a race riot. He moved in fast, not slowing down, lowering the gun even as he closed the distance. A flash thought of wondering where to put it because he didn't have a holster, and he wasn't going to fire on an old woman, and if he did, the bullet might hit Jean. Erica looked up just as Colding grabbed her left shoulder and yanked. The move caught Erica off guard. Her left hand slid off the handle, and she fell back, her right hand still clutching the axe halfway up the shaft. Jean let out a hissing, painful cough. Colding held the Breta awkwardly at his right side, more of a hindrance than a weapon. Erica rolled to her ass and saw the gun. Her eyes widened in instant recognition, instant panic, and she even shook her head a little as if to say, no, no, that's not supposed to happen. Dr. Hole, drop that! But that was all he got out before she panicked and swung the axe one-handed with her right arm. The swing was slow, a little clumsy, but he hadn't expected such a snap reaction. The blade's top edge sliced through his down parka. Small white feathers flew into the air. A stinging pain streaked from his left shoulder to his sternum. The axe's weight and momentum actually turned Erica, still sitting on her ass, pulling her right arm around and stretching her forward like she was reaching out to pick something off the ground. The axe blade dug into the linoleum floor with a chunk. Coling didn't think, he just moved, taking one step forward and snap-kicking Erica whole in the ribs. He felt and heard something crack. She screamed a strange, sharp scream that cut off almost instantly. The kick's momentum flipped her on her back. 
The axe remained embedded in the tile floor, handle sticking out at a 45-degree angle like some cheap prop from a horror flick. Pain still stinging his chest, Colding stepped forward and swung the Beretta, aiming for the bridge of Erica's nose. Sanity kicked in at the last second. He pulled back, fighting his own momentum, until the top of the Beretta barrel touched Erica's pain-scrunched face with all the force of a mother's goodnight kiss. Erica Hole wasn't going anywhere. She tried to move, but the obvious agony of broken ribs kept her fixed to the floor. Colding shook his head, shook away the rage. He already felt horrible about hurting her that bad, but the woman had hit him with an axe for fuck's sake. Damn, did this hurt. How bad was he cut? A hoarse, guttural cough pulled his attention away from Erica. John, are you okay? She paused for a moment, then looked up, her eyes barely visible through the mop of black hair. She scrambled to her feet and threw her arms around his neck, almost knocking him over. She clutched him tight. Silent sobs suddenly racked her body. I'm okay, Mr. Coley. She choked me so hard. Colding kept his left hand down and away from her. The pain seemed to radiate, oddly making his left elbow and right shoulder ache, although neither had been touched. He felt his shirt clinging wetly to his skin. He patted John gently with his right hand, which was still holding the gun. Just calm down. You need to let go. I have to take care of this. Jean gave him one more squeeze, making his cut scream louder. She let him go and snatched up the thing she'd clutched tight even while Erica had choked her. What is that? Petabyte drive, Jean said, her voice a bit more calm. We have succeeded. Colding didn't have time to ask what she meant before his earpiece crackled with Gunther's excited voice. Boss, great work, but that bogey is almost here. Who was it? Mercenaries hired by our competitor? No. His gut told him it had to be Longworth's people. How long till it lands? Less than three minutes. Okay, listen closely. That'll probably be U.S. Special Forces, maybe Canadian. But either way, armed to the teeth. Gather up Roomkorf and Tim and get them to the front airlock. Leave them with Andy. Then you run the perimeter and see if you can find Brady. I want all of our people calm and visible with weapons holstered. You got that? Weapons holstered. Understood. Good. If this is an assault team, we cannot win. And I don't want anyone else getting hurt. Yes, sir. I'm on it. Andy Crossweight entered the bioinformatics lab. The thick stench of burning fuel oozed off him, as did a smell Colding had prayed he'd never encounter again. The smell of burning human flesh. Greasy streaks covered Andy's face, hands, and jacket sleeves. He took one look at the scene, then strode forward and leveled his sidearm at the prone Erica Hole. You're dead, cunt! God damn it, Andy, Colding said. You left your post again? Drop the left your post bullshit, Colding. This isn't a fucking John Wayne movie. You gonna finish this bitch or what? We're not gonna finish anyone. It's Erica, for God's sake. I know who she is. She's a backstabbing twat that worked side by side with us for two fucking years, then just went apeshit and killed Brady. Colding's heart dropped. Brady's dead? Andy nodded. His upper lip snarled when he spoke. I pulled his body out of the hangar. He burned alive. Andy glared down at Erica. 
So who's paying you, whore? Monsanto? Genetron? How much did you get for killing a man that guarded your ass every day for two years? Erica's eyes squinted shut, and not just from the pain. Colden could see the guilt wash over her. She'd never intended to kill anyone. Andy cocked his bretta, knelt down, and put the end of it against Erica's forehead. Her eyes squeezed tighter. Colding raised his own Beretta. The movement caught Andy's eye. When he turned to look, he stared straight down a barrel. Andy, drop your weapon. Andy opened his mouth, then closed it. Fuck a duck, man. What are you doing? I said, drop your weapon. Nobody else dies today. For the second time in as many minutes, Colding had moved before thinking, caught up in the situation's express lane pace. He'd never pointed a gun directly at anyone in his life, and now here he was with a dead man outside, a wounded woman on the floor, a chopper coming in, and his pistol in the face of a special forces killer. If Andy got crazy, got mad, if he tried to aim his own weapon, then Colding would only have a split second to pull the trigger or probably be killed himself. Moving slow, Andy simultaneously stood and pointed his gun to the ceiling. Okay, okay, Chief, I'm going. Colding raised the barrel as Andy stood, keeping it pointed right at the man's face. I told you to drop your weapon. Take Jean outside. But we have incoming. You want me to go out there unarmed? Andy meant it as a rhetorical question but that was exactly what Colding wanted. Andy, drop your goddamn weapon and get out front. Now! Andy slowly squatted and lowered his gun to the ground. You're gonna regret this shit. Wait till Magnus hears about this. He grabbed John's elbow and guided her to the door. She clutched the petabyte drive to her chest as if it were her only child. When they left the lab, Colding sighed. No good could come of making Andy Crossway an enemy. But no one else was going to die here, and that was that. He picked up Andy's gun, flipped on the safety, then slipped it into the waist of his pants. He knelt next to Erica. Dr. Hole, I'm sorry I had to do that to you. So much pain. She suspected it was just some broken ribs, but she'd never had a broken anything before. The agony consumed her. It felt like big sticks were jammed into her right side. Or maybe spikes. Jagged ones, made of glass. Dr. Hull, Coling said. Talk to me. Can you hear me? She couldn't even move. The tiniest shifts sent waves of near-blackout pain through her chest. As much as her body screamed, it wasn't enough to block out the horrid feeling that she'd killed a human being. It hurt to talk, but she forced out the words. Is Brady really dead? Colding looked away, then looked back. He nodded. If Andy was that mad, then yeah, Brady's dead. What the hell had she been thinking? She was a middle-aged woman, not a commando. Was revenge on Klaus really worth all this? Certainly not worth Brady's life. Brady had been a nice kid, polite, respectful. Maybe 28, 29? She couldn't remember. And now it didn't matter 
because the man would never see 30. My God, Colding, I, I swear, I didn't mean it. Colding nodded. He wasn't gloating, he wasn't angry. He looked sad, like someone who'd just seen a disaster and knew it was real but didn't want to accept it. Listen, Dr. Hull, I need to keep everyone else alive. Tell me what's coming. She started to shrug, but that hurt even more than talking. Don't know. Fisher will be here soon. Colding nodded again, as if she had just confirmed his suspicions. Why is Fisher coming now? We've been here for two years. She shook her head. Don't know. Just wanted... wanted to ruin Klaus. I didn't mean it. I swear. Okay, Colding said. He reached out a hand and gently caressed her hair. It felt comforting. Just stay still. I'll come back as soon as I can with something for the pain. P.J. Colding stood up and ran out of the room, leaving Erica Hole crying from shame, shock, and sheer agony. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. November 8th, Hitch and a Ride. Colding ran to a hallway bathroom and tore open a wall-mounted first aid kit. He grabbed gauze, steripads, and a bottle of Advil. Would the Advil help with Erica's pain? He didn't know, but he had to do something. He'd lost it, gone into some kind of a rage and kicked that woman's ribs as hard as he could, like he was some kind of fucking animal, like he'd been when he attacked Paul Fisher. Don't forget the axe, big guy. Erica's axe almost killed you. No, no excuses. He was in charge, and that meant everything. Erica's injury, Brady's death, the explosion, was all his fault. He pulled his parka open and looked in the bathroom mirror. Blood soaked the gray shirt underneath. He gently pulled at the cut fabric to see the gash in his skin. It was still bleeding in spots, but more of a deep scratch than a life-threatening injury. Bad enough to merit kicking a woman's ribs? No, but he tried to check that thought. It was ridiculous to feel guilty for defending himself against that kind of attack. He started to tear open the gauze pack when the sound of jet engines caught his attention. Erica's pain, his own cut, those would have to wait. He shrugged the bloody jacket back on, puffing up a small cloud of downy white feathers. He ran to the front airlock. Seconds later, Colding stepped into the winter night. The hangar flames had died down considerably. A light wind drove falling snow at an angle, making the exterior lamps look like shimmering cones of light. The approaching jet engine screamed louder than he thought possible. Fisher was almost here. Fisher, the man who organized investigations of transgenic companies, who coordinated elements of the CDC, WHO, CIA, and USAMRID. Fisher, who apparently had the ability to reach out and manipulate broken-hearted, bitter women 
into saboteurs and inadvertent murderers. Fisher, the man once in charge of the project that had killed Colding's wife. All of it made Colding long desperately for another round with him, to do far more than just fuck up the man's knee. Colding's rage had no place being directed against a 45-year-old woman, but against Colonel Paul Fisher, that was a different matter. Out by the ruined satellite dish, Gunther and Andy stood with Rumkorf, Jean, and Tim Feely. Gunther, God bless him, had his gun holstered. Colding walked up and joined them, Beretta in his right hand but down at his side. He kept Andy in sight. Tim looked so drunk he might fall over at any moment. Jean shook with huge sobs. Twenty feet from the group, a green tarp covered an unrecognizable smoldering lump, a lump about the size of Brady Giovanni. The night wind made the tarp's edges snap loudly and carried away most of the oppressive stench. Most of it. The odors of burning flesh and burning fuel still hung in the air. None of them looked at the body. Instead, they looked up into the night sky. The bogey Gunther had warned about was coming in for a landing, but it wasn't a chopper. They saw a massive silhouette, running lightless, flat black paint soaking up the firelight from the warehouse's flickering flames. Mein Gott, Rumkorf said. That thing is gigantic. Colding couldn't believe his eyes. The plane's headlamps flipped on, casting long cones of light onto the snow-covered landing strip. The plane was so big, it looked as if it were barely moving. There was only one vehicle that had those massive dimensions. A C-5 Galaxy. Sarah, Colding said quietly. But it couldn't be. Erica's attack had just happened. How could Dante have responded this quickly? The C-5 had been Colding's idea a flying lab to keep the Ancestor Project mobile in case of something, well, in case of something exactly like what had just gone down. One of the world's largest planes, the 247-foot C-5, ran almost from goal line to goal line on a football field. Its wings spread out like the arms of a giant, 222 feet from tip to tip, and the top of the tail towered six stories high. The cockpit looked like a small black cyclops eye, notched into the elongated, rounded triangle of a fuselage. A 450,000-pound monstrosity, large enough to move an entire biotech lab, cows and all, to anywhere in the world. Five sets of massive wheels, each set the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, extended to meet the snowy landing strip. The C-5 seemed to be moving in slow motion, but it was a jet coming in for a landing at around 120 miles an hour. Gunther moved to stand at Colding's shoulder. What do you want us to do? If not for the burning hangar, the charred body on the ground, and the woman in the bioinformatics lab with at least a couple of broken ribs, Colding might have laughed at the question. Do? Just get in. Our ride is here. November 8th, War Zone. The C-5's tail ramp slowly lowered. The wind picked up speed, whipping light snow across the landing strip and sending hands to shield squinting eyes. Lights blared from the plane's 20-foot opening, a glowing cave that made a hazy, shivering corona against the falling snow. It struck Colding as a giant mechanical monster, jaws agape, waiting to swallow the Ruhmkorf project whole. As the ramp lowered past the halfway point, a single man walked down its length. 
Magnus Paglione. And he let out a triumphant, yeah! He gave Colding a now-you're-in-for-it dirty look, then ran to meet his friend. Magnus and Andy reminded Colding of a man and a pet terrier. Andy was hyper, perpetually angry, and worshipped his master. Magnus obviously enjoyed Andy's company, but never hesitated to dish out discipline as needed. A large black duffel bag hung from Magnus's shoulder. The weight of the contents pulled the canvas straps into taut lines that folded up on themselves, but Magnus carried it with the casual ease of a man carrying a loaf of bread. He walked up to Colding, surveying the people and the damage. His gaze landed on Brady's corpse. Magnus stared at it for a few seconds. Is that Brady? Colding nodded. Magnus looked up, his expression blank. Who did it? Colding swallowed. His heart raced. Magnus's face showed no emotion, but his whole demeanor had changed. He radiated danger. It was Dr. Hull. You're kidding, Magnus said. An old woman did all of this? Why? Colding glanced at Roomcorp, thought of lying to keep things as calm as possible, but there was no point. She wanted to get back at Klaus for getting Galena kicked off the project. Klaus blinked. Snow stuck to his black-rimmed glasses. He looked down at Brady's corpse, then looked up, taking a subconscious step away from the smoking body as if to separate himself just a bit more. That's ridiculous, Klaus said. Erica Hall is a woman of science. I don't believe it. Believe it, Jan said in a hoarse rasp. She took out the off-site backup and all the data. Klaus's face blanched and his chest puffed up in panic. It wasn't lost on Colding that Klaus instantly seemed far more concerned about his project than the dead body on the ground. The data? She destroyed our data? How could you let her do that? Jeanne held up the petabyte cartridge. She looked scared, hurt, and sad all at the same time, but Colding would have bet a hundo that a part of her bitterly enjoyed the panic she'd just given Rumkorf. I have it all, Jeanne said, and we have done it. Ninety-five percent viability. Colding felt a surge of excitement, yet another emotion joining the tumult ripping through his head and soul. Had they done it after all? Ninety-five, Rumkorf said, his face shifting from bluster and anger to shock and excitement. That is fantastic! Go team, Magnus said. All's well that ends well, right? As long as we have the precious data... I guess it's all good. Rumkorf actually started to agree, then realized that Magnus was being facetious. Rumkorf stared at the ground. Magnus turned his glare back to Colding. Where is Hole? In the bioinformatics lab. It's under control. If you call my dead friend and millions of dollars in damage under control, Bubba, then you and I use a different dictionary. Magnus loved to call Americans Bubba especially Colding. He seemed to find either great humor or great insult in the name. I know, right? Andy said. It looks like an assault team came in, but no, just some old nympho. Sure glad Colding's in charge. Andy, shut up, Magnus said. We're in a bit of a hurry here. Let's get everyone on board. We're bugging out. A fresh gust of wind made everyone duck their head, shield their eyes, and take a half step for balance. Everyone but Magnus. He stood still as a stone and stared at Colding. 
Colding stared right back, his best poker face firmly in place, suspecting Magnus saw right through it. Time to move, Magnus said. Dr. Roomkorf, you have enucleated eggs for all the backup herds? Of course. They're in storage in the main lab. Get them, Magnus said. Duplicates of your equipment are on the plane, including the god machine. You don't have to wait until we land. You can run the immune response during flight. Jean handed Colding the petabyte drive. I will get the eggs, she said. She raised an arm over her eyes to block the wind, then ran for the front airlock. Magnus again stared at the tarp-covered Brady Giovanni. He looked up and nodded, as if he'd accepted the situation. Colding, get everyone on the plane. We need to move. I'll stay and get a medevac in for Dr. Hole. Andy stepped forward. Are you shitting me, Mags? The C-5's lights cast strange shadows on Andy's eyes, under his nose, under his chin. It made him look a little demonic. That bitch killed Brady, man, and when I tried to take care of it, Colding drew down on me and even took my gun. He's still got my fucking gun, right? You can't possibly tell me you're going to leave him in charge, and he has no idea that... Magnus's left hand shot out and grabbed Andy by the throat, interrupting the smaller guard's rant. The grab was so controlled it looked almost delicate. One second Andy was talking, the next he was choking, his eyes bulging in surprise, a massive hand completely wrapped around his neck. Andy, Magnus said, I thought I told you to shut up. Andy's hand shot up, tried to isolate a finger and bend it backward. Colding saw Magnus squeeze just a little bit. Andy's eyes grew even wider. Then he held his hands up, palms out. Magnus let go and again looked at Colding as if nothing had happened. Coughing hard, Andy bent at the waist, hands at his throat. He stayed calm, dealing with it, but it was clear that Magnus could have crushed his windpipe with just a touch more pressure. Fisher's on the way, Magnus said. We have a very limited satellite window and have to go right now. We've been calling you for 30 minutes, but... He gestured to the broken satellite dish. Looks like your phone is out of service. Our intel says we have about 40 minutes to get clear. I want the C-5 airborne and 5. Give Andy his weapon. Colding pulled the Beretta from his belt and handed it back to Andy. Magnus looked back to the C-5. Let's move! He waved his hand, beckoning someone inside to come down the ramp. Sarah Perinam. She stood at least five foot ten, maybe just a bit taller if you counted her crop of tousled, short blonde hair. Light blue eyes were little pinpoints of electric light embedded in her freckled complexion. Just like the last time, Colding didn't see a trace of makeup. Anything covering that skin would only detract from her natural beauty. She looked the very picture of a surfer girl gone Air Force. She walked down and stood right in front of Colding. She looked pissed. From the mission or from the way he had treated her? Probably both. He felt an instant and powerful sexual attraction, the same one he'd felt the last time they'd met. He had acted on it and betrayed the memory of his barely cold wife. The thought of Clarissa dredged up a fresh scar of guilt. He had more important things to do than ogle this woman. Mr. Colding. Sarah said in an even tone. Fancy meeting you here. Pernam, Colding said, nodding. Sarah turned to Magnus. So what the hell is going on? This looks like a war zone. Roomcorf stepped forward. 
Yes, what happened? If Erica did want to hurt me, why now? Why is Colonel Fisher coming after us again? Magnus looked at everyone, one by one, seeming to weigh the value of spending more time in the ground. Novozyme had a virus jump species. 75% lethality. Runkor's eyes widened. 75%? I always knew Matal's method was flawed. That is horrible. Did the virus get out? Contained, Magnus said. The Americans were on it fast. Fisher fuel-bombed the lab, then moved on to shutting down all transgenic projects. That includes us. Runkorf shook his head. No, no, not when we are so close. We have to keep going. So get in the fucking plane, Magnus said. We're taking the project underground. All of your competitors will soon be offline. All of them. If you don't get out of here before Fisher arrives, your Nobel Prize will be forever lost in the mail. Sarah's eyes narrowed. Who the hell is Colonel Fisher? Are we talking U.S. military? And there is a fucking dead body right there. We didn't sign up for this shit. Magnus turned fast and took a step toward her, the motion bringing him toe-to-toe with Sarah. She had to look straight up to meet Magnus's eyes. You signed up to do whatever we tell you to do, he said. You've certainly cashed enough of our checks. Now, unless you want to lose your business, get your crew moving and load the plane. You've got four minutes. Sarah held his gaze for just a second, then turned away and shouted in a voice that momentarily drowned out the idling jet engines. Let's move, boys! Wheels up in four minutes! You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.